0: Welcome to the latest episode of Public Power Now. I'm Paul Shimpoli, News Director for APPA. Our guest in this episode is Aaron Orlowski, a communications specialist and the primary spokesperson for Oregon Public Power Utility, the Eugene Water and Electric Board, or EWEB. Aaron, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me on the show, Paul.
0: Sure thing. So Aaron, just to get our conversation started, I'm sure that a a healthy majority of our members uh, who are listening to this podcast know know about your utility. But for those who may not, could you provide a brief overview of the utility?
1: Definitely. EWEB is Oregon's largest publicly owned electric utility. So we serve about 96,000 customers or about 200,000 people in Western Oregon. So we're in Eugene, which is the home of the University of Oregon. Go Ducks. Um, We have a five member elected board of commissioners and like a lot of utilities here in the Northwest, especially the publicly owned ones, um, we get most of our power from the Bonneville Power Administration, uh, the federal agency that sells hydropower to local utilities. So Bonneville provides about 80% of our power and overall, we're essentially a hydro dominant utility.
0: It goes without saying that, that this summer has been challenging nationwide in terms of extreme stream weather and and increased demands on the power grid. So in that context, one of the things that jumped out at me as I was preparing for this interview was the fact that last month, the utility highlighted the fact that its customers played a key role um, in maintaining grid stability during the extreme heat wave. They acted collectively and made small adjustments to temporarily reduce uh, energy consumption. Can you offer additional details on the actions that that the utility as well as its customers took?
1: Yeah, that's right, Paul. Our customers played a huge role in uh, helping the the grid maintain stability back in August. So at, at that time, temperatures were above 100 degrees for four days straight, which might be you know nothing for our listeners in Arizona, but for us here in the Northwest, that was incredibly hot. Um, there were some regional power generators that were offline, including one of our power plants. Uh, and they were offline due to wildfire risk. Uh, there were wildfires in the areas, and and uh, we couldn't carry that power on those lines. Um, so in response, eWeb, we issued our first ever voluntary call to conserve energy. So we asked our customers to delay their EV charging, delay use of major appliances until after peak hours, so after 9 p.m and it worked. Uh, we had a tremendous response from our customers. They cut energy usage by about 10 to 15 megawatts, we calculated. Um, so that's roughly the equivalent of 10 to 15,000 window air conditioning units. Uh, and when you think about it, you know we have 96,000 customers. So that's a huge response, um, a, a significant proportion of, of folks listened to that call to conserve. And what I really want to highlight here, Paul, is that this this response makes us very optimistic about the future. Uh, one of the things that we're looking closely at right now is demand response programs. We don't have any formally right now, but we're in the process of studying what kinds we need to implement in the future. And this, this response to the voluntary call to conserve basically gives us hope that you know our customers will, will respond enthusiastically when we do start rolling those programs out
0: the success of, of what happened last month in terms of your inter, the utility interacting with customers, how much, I'm just trying to get a sense of how much of the groundwork was laid prior to that um, to make it a smooth process.
1: I mean, in a sense, we've been laying this type of groundwork for a long time. You know, we really pride ourselves on the fact that um, our customers have a, a very positive impression of us overall, um, you know, and we have uh, open communication channels with them. So one of the the key ways that we were able to reach so many customers for this particular event is uh, our, our monthly email newsletter. So we have an email list with about 66,000 email addresses on it. Um, and they're used to getting that email newsletter every month. So we sent out um, an email to that whole list. And so everyone got an alert that this, you know, was an event that they could respond to. Um, and that was, you know, one of the ways that we were able to really get that incredible response.
0: So now you mentioned demand response programs, and uh, again, preparing for the interview, I, I was I was looking at the utilities to integra- uh, 2023 integrated resource planning process, which identified uh, demand response programs as a key element of the utilities' future resource mix. More specifically, um, as I understand it, the utility is going to pursue studies related to DR programs and the potential to incentivize customers to conserve and consume less energy overall. So my question is, how will the utility engage with its customers as it works on these studies, and is there a timeline for their completion?
1: Yeah, I'll talk about the timeline first of all. Uh, so this the integrated resource planning process that you mentioned, we we just concluded that 2023 report and we published those results, uh, shared them with the community and, and engaged the community on that. And that was the first IRP that we did in a decade. Um, but we're going to do the next one a lot sooner. We're going to do an IRP every two years, which we think is a reasonable schedule to adapt to these really dynamic conditions right now in the in the energy world. But before we get to the next IRP in 2025, we need to finish those two studies that you mentioned. So one on uh, demand response and then one on conservation, because we need to know how much potential is there to conserve in our community? You know, uh, many homes are already fully weatherized and uh, already have upgraded appliances. So how much more can we do? And then what types of demand response programs would be the ones that appeal to our customers the most? and and which ones would be cost effective. So as we're doing these studies, you know, we'll we'll engage our customers as we always do with really active dialogue. For instance, during the the IRP process, we really had a two-stage public engagement process where first we generated some initial results uh, and we published those and we asked the community What questions should we ask in our second round of analysis? And so that was an open engagement process where we kind of, you know, we showed them the first stage and then we invited their participation in the second in the second stage. We also had lots of presentations to our board of commissioners, seven in total, half a dozen town halls and then. We really rely a lot on our local media partners uh, to get the word out as well. So during that IRP process, we had more than 20 stories in the local media, mm-hmm. uh, including a couple appearances on a, a statewide broadcast show that's um, done by Oregon's NPR affiliate. Uh, and then you know, throughout that process, we got more than 60 written comments. So as we're doing these conservation and DR studies, we're going to be looking at similar kinds of methods of engaging our community giving presentations, going to rotary clubs and environmental group meetings, and just, you know, using our our standard methods of communication, email newsletter, social media, the news media, all those tools.
0: And this underscores the advantage of public power and and connections to communities.
1: Yeah, we're, we are really close to our our community. And, and, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, they have the opportunity to, to come and come to a board meeting, which occurs every month, like I'm sure is the case with, you know, many, many public power utilities, and they can, you know, voice their opinions. They can learn what our board is learning about, and then they can uh, offer comment both at the meeting and beyond.
0: Okay, and and just sticking with the, the IRP from the 2023 IRP, other than demand response and the focus on demand response, what would you say are some of the other uh, key takeaways?
1: There were a few, and as I mentioned earlier, you know the last IRP that we did was ten years ago, and at that time, we were able to set a policy to offset all future load growth with conservation. And what we learned this time around is that that's not the case anymore. We're going to need additional resources, uh, and especially if demand rises dramatically, which looks more and more likely uh, as mm-hmm. as the future gets closer but a few key takeaways you know first of all hydropower is a great fit for us in the northwest it's northwest it's an abundant carbon free resource and it's low cost for us as, as customers of bonneville but we can't really depend on hydropower to grow with us the you know the we're probably maxed out on the system and if anything hydropower is gonna be constrained more in the future is Precipitation patterns change and runoff patterns change. And then also as the 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 constraints on operating hydropower hydropower facilities change with, you know, regulations related to to protecting salmon. We also learned that new wind farms and new utility scale batteries could be a really valuable supplement to that hydropower base. So, you know, for us here in the Northwest, We found that solar wasn't really a good fit for us and that's not that surprising if you spent much time here you know the winters are really cloudy the winters are when we have our peak demand periods and solar just doesn't provide a lot of energy at that time so our modeling analysis software selected wind and you know by the time we get enough in to meet our winter needs we don't really need solar for any of those summer needs so those were a couple of the the other lessons and then a big one that we learned as well was that if demand rises dramatically we're going to need to look closely at some zero carbon on-demand resources
0: now just wanted to circle back to one element of what you just discussed as you know there's been a fair amount of news in terms of projects that involve pairing um storage with solar resources so this may be too early to to comment on but i mean in terms of wind and storage is would those be separate or is there some possibility they might be paired together or is it too early to say
1: well we looked at kind of two options and, and both are viable for where exactly that battery storage could be cited mm. you know one option is really adjacent to the wind farm okay. um, and so that that's you know kind of a, a wind and solar pairing project another option that has its own uh appeal is to cite the storage it near the customers like in town somewhere maybe at a substation or something like that. I and mean, there's you know there's benefits and drawbacks to both and you know for us it's probably a little too early to say which of those would be better but those are definitely two options that we're looking at.
0: Okay so just to clarify you you meant uh wind win plus storage is one option. Right. Yeah okay. Okay, great. So so with respect to zero carbon which you touched upon, when when Eweb released modeling results showing a potential need for zero carbon on-demand resources such as small modular reactors, how did the community respond and how did the utility in turn respond to that?
1: Yeah, thanks for asking this Paul. So so mm-hmm. we had some modeling results that showed that, you know, if demand rises dramatically, then these on-demand zero carbon dispatchable resources become more important to to meet that demand Uh, and that demand could rise more dramatically for a few reasons one of which is to meet resource adequacy requirements you know here in the western us utilities are looking at joining the western resource adequacy program which would require them to have a buffer on top of their peak needs and so if that happens then you know those on-demand resources could become more important so we shared these results with the community and the the on-demand zero carbon or low carbon resources that were included in our modeling analysis were small modular nuclear reactors uh and biomass and there's a very vocal group here in western oregon that opposes nuclear so we heard from them they testified to our board of commissioners expressed their their uh, concerns about that resource and what we kind of realized is that there was a disconnect between where we are in the planning process and where the community thinks we are. Mm-hmm. So, and this was something that we needed, need to to continue to emphasize, you know, the, some members in the community were worried that we would essentially be building a nuclear power plant tomorrow. And that's just mm-hmm. not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our modeling results showed that potentially we could need small modular nuclear around 2030, which is the soonest that it might become available. But those are just modeling results, you know? Mm-hmm. Like many utilities in, in public power, we're a very analytically driven organization. So we ran the numbers, we did the math, and we shared those results with the community. And now we need to be clear about what this means and that we actually need to develop another separate process to really go about procuring these resources. Like we don't we can we're not in the position to do that yet. And thankfully we do have some time. You know, the the soonest we might need new resources is 2026. So we have a little bit of time to to continue working on this.
0: It's clear up until this point of our conversation that that overlaying a lot of what we're talking about is utilities' success with engaging with with community members. So my last question, I just kind of wanted to to wrap up with you know strategies. If you could elaborate on strategies that eWeb utilizes to connect with customers, and could you offer specific examples?
1: Sure, Paul. So, you know, here at eWeb, we really take a multi-channel approach to connecting with customers. Um, so that means one pillar of that is the the news media, social media, email newsletters, all those sort of direct outreach materials where we can educate customers on what's happening. We also frequently take comment you know via various comment cards and comment forms on our website that's how we were able to collect all those comments for for the irp we also distribute it distribute printed materials in in people's bills and we're getting back into more and more in-person community events as you know as we emerge from sort of this covid era uh, so we've also added in virtual events as well to that um, where we're just doing town halls directly communicating with with folks taking their questions answering them taking their feedback you know I described that process earlier for the IRP and we repeat that process on on all sorts of other projects that that we're doing. But we have a couple other things that we do as well you know one for instance we do a customer survey every couple of years to really get a pulse on where our customers sit, stand and so for instance with that survey you know we found that our customers when it comes to energy planning decisions they roughly equally prioritize our three of our core values which is reliability affordability and environmental responsibility and i think this is important to mention because sometimes we don't always hear that directly when we're when we're talking to customers uh, directly. You know, the folks who show up to a board meeting or a community meeting, they tend to be older and wealthier, and they tend to have the resources to spend the time mm-hmm. to both go to those meetings and to spend the time learning about these topics. Mm-hmm. So we really have to bear in mind that our community has a broader perspective than we might hear um, in some of those forums. And I think, you know, just, you know, kind of as a final final note on this, part of the the effort that we're going to is, you know, getting the word out to the community and and engaging them and getting their feedback. We also need to, you know, really focus on what kind of story we're telling something that's become really apparent is that we still need to be reminding people that we're publicly owned. And I'm sure this is mm-hmm. the case with different public power utilities, you know, across the country. You know, we just, we need to remind our customers that there are no shareholders, there's no investors, no one's profiting right. off of their bills. And we just have to keep emphasizing emphasizing that message. And also anytime that one group of customers asks for a subsidy or a new service, they're really asking their neighbors to pay for it, so we kind of have to have this equity lens to make sure that people understand that we're sharing all of these costs together. And then, lastly, you know, something that's really important as we're, you know, kind of going through this energy planning process and figuring out what kind of energy future we're going to have, uh, we need to tell a really cohesive story: the transition to our lower zero carbon decarbonized energy sector is not going to be easy. Uh-huh. you know utilities have done such a good job with reliability. You know every time someone flicks on a light switch, it just seems like magic that that this happens, and they barely even think about it, and so they almost think that our job is easy, Of course, we know it's anything, but we know it takes a lot of work to continue to deliver that reliability and we need to emphasize to our customers it's going to take a lot more work and it's going to be challenging for us to you know continue to deliver that reliability even as we decarbonize you know the future will not be like the past demand is rising and we need to to work together with our customers to address these challenges
0: real quick i mean it strikes me the more i talk to appa members such as eweb you know using irp planning as an example that that we're in an age more than ever of of trade offs in terms of resources right so for example if small modular reactors are not something that your and uh, you know utility x may may have customers that don't don't like that idea then they've got to be made aware of okay well then these are our other choices how much are you guys grappling with that
1: from the very start of our integrated resource planning process we recognized that this concept of trade-offs was going to be crucial because you're exactly right you know there's there's no perfect resource there's no single solution to our cha- challenges you know what we really need is a diverse mix of resources you know we need those those low-cost renewables wind and solar um, but they're intermittent. So we need something to sort of balance that out, balance out when those generate, which brings in the storage, the batteries, and the demand response programs that can shift when that energy is being used. But then we also need those on-demand, dispatchable resources. You know, maybe it's nuclear, maybe they're the advances in in geothermal um, mm-hmm. will provide that ability. But something that can get us through those extended periods of high demand. Here in the Northwest, it's usually a winter cold snap. Mm. In other parts of the country, it may be an extended heat wave. But we need something to to get us through those times and and the resources in those three categories, they're not interchangeable. You know, we need mm. some of each. And it's kind of like an investment portfolio. We all know this, but you know, it's worth reminding our our customers of it. I mean, we all know that one guy who got Apple stock 20 years Great. ago and is like a multimillionaire yeah. now. But right. that's the exception, not the rule. Yeah. Like we need that diverse portfolio of resources to get us through this energy transition.
0: Aaron, well, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. It's been a really informative conversation. And uh, given everything that that's on the utilities plate, I would love to have you come back as a guest sometime in the next you know six months to a year to kind of revisit m- these and other topics.
1: Thanks, Paul. Yeah, I'd love to come back as well. And thanks for having me on the show.
0: Sure thing, Aaron. Thanks for listening to this episode of Public Power Now, which is produced by Julio Guerrero, graphic and digital designer at APPA. I'm Paul Shimpoli, and we'll be back next week with more from the world of public power.